three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play another one of the tapes that uh, my friend Mac Larson gave me a little while back. This one is from August of 1985, and it features Terrence McKenna and Ralph Abraham. I asked Ralph if uh, this was their first uh, Esalen conversation, and he said, well, it may have been, although it wasn't the first time that they spoke together. Before this talk, they appeared uh, well at the Omega Institute in upstate New York and at Open Center in New York City. In any event, uh, this is a rare old recording, apparently made by Paul Herbert, according to the label, and this one is labeled Number 7 Unedited, so uh, it may be a new one, I don't know. Now before I listened to this recording, well, I was feeling kind of bad about the fact that I had to tell Ralph that I didn't feel I was any longer up to the task of interviewing him about his latest book, which is amazing, by the way. But in this recording, as he was interviewing Ralph, Terrence said, and I quote, I don't fully understand Ralph. No one does. <laughs> and then he went on to say that he would try to interview him. Now, I don't feel quite so badly about losing my edge for doing interviews. Even in my prime, I still needed somebody to help me interview somebody like Ralph. Uh, <laughs> and the irony here is that he is so charming and unassuming that he doesn't even realize how blindingly intelligent he is, and of course that intimidates me. Now in this conversation with Terrence McKenna at Esalen in 1985, if you listen closely and have read Schism, Ralph's latest book, I think you'll see that way back in 1984 he was already laying the foundation for it. Now, uh, as to the recording I'm about to play for us, I think it's a great example of the freewheeling camaraderie that existed between Terence and Ralph, and it also shows how laid back and relaxed the workshops were at Esalen, and still are, I assume. Around 18 minutes into this talk, Terence asked Ralph about the possibility of modeling psychological states or social states, and that is where they really grabbed my attention. You see, Ralph's book, Schism, does just that. The full title of this book is, <laughs> and are you ready for this? Schism, The Madness of Crowds, Toxicity of Social Media, Social Polarization, and Political Violence, A Cybernetic Approach. <laughs> now, try to keep that in the back of your mind as you listen to this conversation. And also be sure to remember that this conversation took place 38 years ago. For those of you who haven't had the pleasure, this is Professor Ralph Abraham, <laughs> mathematician, dynamicist, author of the Foundation of Mechanics, and, uh, and prim rascal. primarily known as a friend of Terence. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> well. We're very glad that you're here to bring order out of the chaos. Where am I? <laughs> well, that's what we're hoping you're going to do. <laughs> um, I was making something up here. Let me see, what was it? 
I have no idea. Anyway, what Ralph was saying to me before we came down here was that the, that the fractals are interesting, but beyond the fractals lie uh, attractors, <laughs> basins of attraction, hot bifurcations, Lorentz attractors, these kinds of things, which are, are obviously more high-powered tools yet for the modeling of the ubiquitous complexity that is uh, our, the foundation experience of being. So we're going to try and talk about this a little bit. I don't fully understand Ralph. No one. <laughs> so don't feel lost. But I will try to interview him and we'll carry it along a while. Now that's a very bad start. Terrence. <laughs> Because you have, and everyone has, I firmly believe, the excellent chance, the outstanding chance, to understand everything, because it's really simple. <laughs> but, well, I hope you make it simple. <laughs> well, we shall see. But I think that you more or less have to listen with the idea that this is easy, and then it's easy. And it is easy. Ralph has written there. two books, or Instant now three retraining. books. That are the greatest breakthrough in visual in the teaching of mathematics in probably centuries, maybe since Euclid, because he and an artist named Christopher Shaw, who has the amazing psychedelic ability to portray these and draw perfectly these extremely complex objects undergoing transformation, they produce three books. Each book has an attendant piece of software that allows you to actually have an experimental dynamics laboratory on your home computer and draws beautiful figures. And uh, so if anyone can make it simple, you can, Ralph. Why don't you review from the point of view of people who are interested in what this means about modeling neurology, psychology, and nature, what dynamics is and about, and what its mm. promise is. Yes. Excellent. Well, we could start with, you know, a few moments ago in the history of consciousness, about 6,000 years ago, when there was an event very similar in its import and the style of its presentation to what is happening now, at least in my personal view. And that was the discovery of the wheel. Now, the wheel first presented itself in human consciousness. We don't know when. There are, for example, uh, cave paintings of 10,000 BC in Altamira, where you see the faces of the moon. So, obviously, if they'd figured out the faces of the moon, which is a sufficiently challenging problem, that every time we look at the moon, we are reminded that we don't really understand which way it's going, which way the shadow's going, what is happening next, is it waxing or waning, oh, I forget. Some people have got this down, but everybody knows that it's not all that easy. And when it was figured out, there must have been, in consciousness, the idea of cycle. That is to say, the period, the periodic recurrence of a sequence of different states, always in the same period of time. This is a revelation, discovery of the wheel on the cognitive level as a cognitive strategy. 
it was significantly later, horrendously later, when a real wheel first appeared, and apparently the first one was the pottery wheel. That's nice. It was only a few years after the pottery wheel that the war chariot wheel arrived on the scene. So it's nice that the pottery wheel was first. Now, the fractals, you've seen the pictures of the certain kind of fractal called the Mandelbrot set, or the Julia set. And that is, as the pottery wheel is to the cognitive wheel, it is a single episode, single application of a certain abstract concept, see? So probably the important event, most important event, is the emergence of a new concept as fundamental and basic as wheel or cycle into consciousness, which probably requires that the evolution of the brain and mind themselves reach certain level that is able to manifest the complexity of, of cycle. You see, before it could come in. Otherwise, it came in before, wherever it did. If, in fact, we are evolving, which some people, of course, including myself, seriously question. However, let us accept the current paradigm. It is evolving. It started from nowhere. At some point, our consciousness expanded from a steady state. Uh, like in Greek philosophy, all concepts are nouns, basically. They're these static things. They don't change in time. That dynamic process was not you know, a concept that fit into their technology of philosophy at that time very well. So the ideas, idea of Plato is a slide collection, not a movie collection. Okay? So when the wheel came in cycle, as far as cycle of different states in time, such as the phases of the moon, that represents a certain pattern in space and time. It's a very complicated kind of thing, and the brain has to be wired up sufficiently complicated structure itself to engulf or present or portray such a notion as pattern in space and time. So the first thing past the Platonic idea would be a, a movie, a whole movie gets named by a word. So like this movie, you know, then we give it a name, and maybe that name is becomes a a noun, but when experienced, it would have to be experienced over some interval of time, which could be terrifically compressed by playing the movie real fast. So the pottery wheel in Mesopotamia, up, up north a little bit, the war chariot wheel of the Hurrians, who then used it to come down and conquer, obliterating the pottery wheel and so on, were different examples of the same abstract concept. This is just a little reconstruction of the history of science, which, which is very well done in different books by masters of the history of science who spent many years studying enormous quantity of archaeological data in order to reconstruct this little story. Now, what I'm saying is that now something else similar to that is happening, which is the biggest one since that one, as far as this kind of of catastrophic growth in consciousness and cognitive ability and modeling strategy and so on is concerned. And I am not speaking about the computer revolution, which is itself a thing of such a magnitude, I do believe, but I'm speaking of something else, and that is simply the emergence into consciousness of a model, a cognitive strategy, a way of thinking that our brains are now okay to 
manage, and that is the chaotic attractor, all of which have been, as far as their explicit structure is concerned, have been studied. So that one, the wheel, this one, the chaotic attractor, I'm sure um, a different name will emerge in the long run. And it's a strategy, a capability, a, it's a cognitive level tool. In other words, an abstraction, and it has its various manifestations. They all have, have been studied with computers, which is a kind of a microscope, functions as a microscope, for the study of space-time pattern, because it has the capability of enormous compression of the sometimes very expanded scale of space-time pattern into a swallowable, conceivable, manageable form, which is not compressed as much as a name. Like, this is a Rustler attractor. This is a Shaw attractor. Or it's not compressed that far. You get a kind of a picture which is a movie, like an object, like a galaxy, and there is a little uh, spacecraft or satellite which is whizzing around it. Then it has a static structure, and it has a dynamic structure, and that is the thing. That is the thing portrayed by high-speed special-purpose computer graphic device, which is a kind of a microscope for these dynamical concepts. So it is not like... Well, it's like a microscope that it is, the, the computer used to study the thing is of uh, not the same interest as the thing itself. On the other hand, you can't see it. You actually cannot see these patterns without a computer. Without the computer revolution, this might never have come in, you know, as clay was necessary for the pottery wheel to evolve. So, this is silicon. That was clay. And the object is this abstract thing which has special cases. So these fractals that you've seen on the cover of the Scientific American, the Julia set, the Mandelbrot set, and so on, these are special cases. All of the chaotic attractors studied with this macroscope of computer graphics have fractal structure. So fractal structure is just one of the interesting properties, that you take a little teeny piece and you zoom in on it so it fills the whole picture on the computer screen, and you then have exactly what you had before, which still have its infinite regress of reentrant form and so on. Although, isn't it true, Ralph, that the point that the Scientific American article was making that was choosing different points of entry into the Mantelbrot set, there seemed to be tremendous variety in what you saw? Well, we're talking about the most complicated forms that have ever come into consciousness. Um, abstract conceptual level. We see more complicated forms in everyday life, every day. So the expansion of consciousness so as to encompass the simple and familiar objects, these objects having sufficient complexity to actually serve us as conceptual models for things in everyday life, such as difficulty in our relationships, like jealousy, emotional things, conflict between nations, progress of the arms race, and so on. The emergence, you know, the availability of these strategies enormously empowers us to deal with ordinary life. So looking back again at the wheel, though we have 6,500 years or something of experience with this concept, there are still people on the planet today who are discovering the wheel for the first time. And in several thousand years, maybe there will still be people discovering that. 
Well, meanwhile, some of us are discovering these chaotic states. The discovery of, you know, the understanding, grokking this and feeling familiar with these models for chaotic states, then makes them feel as, un as unexciting, as unthreatening, as periodic phenomena. So you look at your checkbook, you awake in the dream of paranoia at 3 a.m., and you think, I'm not going to have the money to pay the bills. And, of course, that's true. You do the arithmetic over and over again. You're not going to have the money to pay the bills, and uh, it's going to be terribly embarrassing, and everything is going to go to pieces. But then in the morning when the sun comes up, you realize that the salary check is going to be automatically deposited on the first of the month while doing the arithmetic in the middle of the night. You forgot that. See, So if it was, as seen in the small, this downward trend, when projected indefinitely, would indeed be a catastrophe. But once we realize it's cyclical, it's no longer threatening anymore. Of course, it's going down now. Then it'll be going up, then it'll be going down. It always goes up and down. It stays within limits. It's an important thing for the removal of anxiety from the observation of our surroundings is that it stays within limits. So all of the chaotic attractors, which provide amazingly good models for historical data, like earthquakes, variation of the magnetic field of the Earth, the, the weather, sunspots, things like this. Things that seem so unpredictable. You know, who would... There are good models for that. And yet all of these, almost all, are bounded. They go... Ta -da, ta -da, ta -da, ta -da, and when they get to there, they always turn around and go back. When they get to there, it's always different times. We no longer have the repetition, the recurrence within the same time. And it is, in fact, in the context of chaotic attractors, the time between the repetition of given state, which is unpredictable. That varies. That's what appears to be random. So we can't predict that time exactly, but it always does, you know, it follows around this general pattern. That is the nature of the thing. So this is, is this too complicated? Of course, we're talking about this thing. We don't know what it is, but I'm saying it's, a sim it's in the can. Worry not. <laughs> well, let me see here. A bunch of different things. First of all, what you're implying is that time has this characteristic of, of self-embeddedness. We have a pattern in space and time. And if you try to slice this pattern by time alone, then you will not see the pattern. Right. So it's necessary to have the computer. This branch of mathematics could not exist without the computer, but it has nothing to do with the computer fundamentally the computer is simply a tool which is allowing it to be seen yes my notion has been that historical phenomena can be subject to this kind of analysis from a very fine level to to a, a very gross level in other words uh, if you look at the entire history of the universe the major tendency is toward uh, increase of complexification, but in any subset of time within the life of the universe, that movement toward complexification will be seen upon magnification to be a series of starts and stops or up and down movements. And you see this, uh, this is why observations like every day is somewhat like every other day is a kind of fractal observation. It's also true that every year is very much like every other year. Nevertheless, over longer and longer periods of time, 
more and more bizarre patterns emerge out of the sameness and self-similarity of the situation until when you look at all of history, you see there is a larger design that is not contained in the, uh, in the incremental portions of it that you might look at. But that's true at every level. At every level, there is a way of looking at it which discerns its uniqueness and there is also a way of looking at it which sees it as not only very incrementally different from states which precede and follow it. And, and this has uh, not been included in Western science's definitions of time. Time has been simply a smooth function, and duration was the notion that Newton and 19th century science was using when thinking about time. But duration is not sufficient. Einstein showed that you have to view space and time as two aspects of a single medium that can be deformed by forces in the universe rather than that time was some kind of an abstraction. How much do you think that these kinds of things can be applied to modeling psychological states or social states. Why don't you talk a little about the terrorism problem and modeling? Because this is something that people can grasp because it's in the societal dimension that we share. Everything is. <laughs> well, the, uh, the, the progress of understanding in the history of consciousness is a very mysterious process. We, we see that after some time, everybody understands, and some centuries before, nobody understood the certain thing, that the understanding seems to grow. That is good. And there are strategies when we struggle with a problem or try to do crossword puzzle or play chess or something. We feel, we have little familiar tricks that we use that, of course, computer scientists try to extract for the use by machine in artificial intelligence unsuccessfully most of the time. But nevertheless, we seem to know what we're doing when we come across a problem. For the understanding of complex systems, like several people, a committee, a large company, country, a planetary civilization, ecosystem, the biosphere, and so on, the main strategy, it seems, that has been used to understand these things is modeling. That means that you are very satisfied to throw out all the most complicating factors. You try to retain the most essential features. That means that you give up any hope of making a real model which is very much like the actual system. And you make some highly oversimplified thing and try to think about that. What if we forget the personalities of all the people? their genders, their ages, and so on. Just consider this committee to be an organism itself, or something like that. These tricks of thinking and solving cognitive strategies, I don't know. People probably study that. But I think that a central tool, one of many, but one which has been extremely important in the study of complex systems, is model building. In the model building area, so this word mechanics, which became a technical term of mathematical physics and mathematics, Originally, at the time of Thales, at the beginning of the scientific uh, trip that we belong to, that we all live in the middle of, mechanics meant model building, including carpentry and stuff like that. What you do, 
you uh, have a pivot and you put a little ball there and then you have a wire and a smaller ball and here's the earth is going and then you add this other little ring around here and then that's the moon and finally you can get a good understanding of the phases of the moon also the eclipses of the sun and moon and so on this kind of model building we can view the whole of mathematics erroneously from the point of view of most living mathematicians as one of many strategies of model building which is one of many strategies of understanding or dealing with complex phenomena. So mathematical modeling is uh, a strategy for understanding things. Of all the mathematical strategies for modeling things that emerged, this one that started by Newton, particularly to understand gravitation in the solar system, turned out to be a real good one because it has been used to model practically everything. And almost all the currently used models in mathematical physics, applied physics, mathematics, applied all these things, biology, physiology, mathematical modeling, simulation of social systems, all this stuff is all one idea. Newton's strategy for building models, the greatest mechanic in history. And, and so, yes, and, 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 and so if you say, let us make a model for terrorism, what about this, I'm having the problem of jealousy with my partner, or whatever. Yes, you could take Newton's uh, strategy and make a, a model for it, and it would help understand it to some extent. So, particularly, for example, to make a model of terrorism, seems like um, it could be good, because here's the situation where, um, like the bank account, you wake up in the middle of the night, and in the short run, you're seeing a situation where if this tendency were to continue, it would totally uh, be disastrous. We see that uh, terrorism is expanding more than exponentially. It is growing faster than AIDS or faster than syphilis did in the 17th century and so on. So th this is very frightening. So maybe a, a model, uh, having a model that was relatively predictive, reasonably, you know, qualitatively predictive in the short run, that gave us some glimpse of what the long run behavior, it might be illuminating in some way and either help to deal with the problem or something. So I have tried to apply the technique of Newton to um, terrorism to make a mathematical model that would work something like this. It's a model, right? So it's not to be thought of as being related in any way to the real thing, other than how the other models are related to their real things. So on the computer screen, you can move your finger around and put it down and create an, an instant of terrorism, an act, a, a bomb somewhere in the planet, and then sit back and see what would happen according to hypotheses that are in the model. Then you would see this red stain spreading across the screen, behaving like gonorrhea, behaving like an infectious disease, and following the model rules, which have been the most successful ones, for modeling the spread of infectious disease, which were, as a matter of fact, introduced uh, by Ronald Fisher in 1930, the first model in mathematical biology, the beginning of mathematical biology. This guy tried to make a mathematical model, and it turned out to have a very good relationship with experimental data for the phenomenon of the spread of mutation in a population of fruit flies. We've got these petri dishes full of fruit flies, and then you put a mutant there, and then they have sex with each other, whatever happens in the successive generations, and it's visible because they have four legs instead of two or whatever it is, see? 
And then there was already a lot of data because people were very concerned at that time with Lamarckian versus Darwinian evolution and stuff like that. So they did; a, they had a lot of data. And here he made this mathematical model. He was a geneticist, not a mechanic. And it was really good. So it's that same kind of model applied to terrorism under the very simple idea that is some kind of catching disease. That is to say, a person. This is an example of the modeling process. See, well, how will I make a model for this? Let's see, maybe there's a lot of different kind of people. I know that. But I know some people who could never be a terrorist. And then these other people, they are obviously doing it. So could this one actually turn into a that one, or do you have to be born of that? Well, well, I don't know. I mean, we don't know these things, but we'll just guess something, because you are at liberty to do that when making models. Say, so, well, I'm going to guess that. I'm just going to try this out. This would be model number 70 in a list of 10,000. Well, suppose that a person can be uh, an okay person and then get sick you know, in the middle of life and at any time catch this disease and become a terrorist. It could also happen to you or me. What could be one way of catching this disease? Well, to have contact with a sick person. Well, how would you know that person was sick? You would see them doing it, right? Doing well, maybe to you. So if you get caught and hung on the parrot perch in Brazil for two weeks and then released into the streets or something, maybe you had become a terrorist. I mean, I don't know. It's just an idea for the model. Very much like mutation. Then could such a person already a terrorist? Then, then he's employed by the secret police and gets a great deal of pleasure out of doing the unthinkable, which I couldn't even believe that it became my lot in life to have to read immense number of stories about actually what they do in order to carry on this project. But uh, th then the person having been tortured becomes, you know, a sick person and has the capability of being... that. Then such sick person might never become well, only by dying and replacing this one with a new one that had not that had the experience. But people do die and they are replaced, so it could be that the disease could stabilize at, say, 60% of the population or something even under this hypothesis. Well, would it or wouldn't it? Well, I've described all the hypotheses, and you can look up a Ronald Fisher model in the literature of 1930 and plug this into the computer and run it and actually see the red stain spreading from this one spot in the Middle East, or say in, in Germany, and then spreading till it fills a large part of the European continent, and then because of the institutionalization of a new air route from uh, southern Europe to the Middle East, that a red stain begins to grow on a new continent, and then some other people flew from Germany to South America, and then get, so then you see it growing. So you compare this movie with the actual records, very dutifully kept by Amnesty International, and see it's a good model or no. But actually, it's a terrible model. What do we change? Well, let's suppose that people can get better by um, having an Esalen massage, and then we'll try that out on the in, in the model. In this way, so you come to understand the phenomenon by playing with the tinkertory oh, yeah. models. That's the idea of how this kind of modeling is applied to a given situation. So you don't take the models too seriously. That seems natural to us. But you see these mathematical physicists take the model so seriously that they can, they actually confuse the model with the absolute, with the target system, with the observational universe. We don't do that. So would it be fair to say, Ralph, that the first modeling system that had real power was this Newtonian modeling system, and that probability theory is something else which does another kind of modeling, but that what you're talking about is third-generation modeling systems, which are beyond probability theory, or are they a subset of it? Well, uh... 
I think that Newton's method carried on for a while includes all these things, includes probability theory and quantum theory, and these are all special cases of the same strategy. There is uh, no big distinction. Of course, it happened for a while briefly in the history of science that many people thought that probability theory was an alternate scheme, but one of the interesting things happening recently in the context of these fractal attractors is that it is understood how the probability theory is itself an attractor of another dynamical system. So it's all one, you know, it's all one strategy, although it seems so various in its presentation by different scientists in different fields and so on. It's basically a single strategy, which is as simple as a wheel. You could think of it like that, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's wheels in different sizes and shapes and so on. And what do you think of, or what do you make of the parallelism between the computer-generated graphics and hallucination as we experience it on psychedelic drugs? Do you think that's a trivial or a profound connection? Well, Einstein was saying mm -hmm. there in his uh, address to European Scientific Society in the 30s that uh, he had had this experience personally where he had learned some abstract mathematical system which had been exclusively the creation of the world of thought. And the people went into the closet and thought, and they thought of this stuff. And then he found that it was the perfect fit with some observed phenomenon, very important phenomenon uh, to some people, like the advance of the perihelion of Mercury or something. To him, that this was astounding. You see, that this math purely mathematical structure and this physical system, a large part of the observable universe, in fact, happened to fit like hand in glove. How could that be? This caused awe in him. It was actually the basis of his whole religious feeling, as he expressed in many writers. And in, I think, many of us, when you see something from that planet, way over another galaxy, something from this planet, that are identical, it really is awesome. Well, why does mathematics work so well to describe nature? Well... There, you're asking for a private speculation, because, of course, we don't job. know. <laughs> well, it seems when you do mathematical research that you're exploring some distant landscape, and that every time you travel there, you see the same things, and other people have traveled there and marked out different parts, and you see their footsteps and so on. Now, you have exactly the same experience with psychedelics if you take multiple trips or and um, pay good attention to them and so on, then you feel that you're visiting this landscape, that other people have been there, that what you are experiencing is more or less consonant or resonant with the uh, expression that somebody else made about their trip in the distant mystical literature of the Far East or something like that. And likewise, in science, you look through the microscope, if you're the first person to look, like, who is that hacker or something? I mean, that's, that's a very revolutionary. It's a hell of an experience to look through an instrument to be the first one to land on this planet. Are you kidding? So they certainly, you know, these are similar things. But you ask, why would that landscape visited by mathematicians and that landscape visited by the psychedelic pioneers and that landscape visited by the early scientists and so on actually be coherent? that they are resonant, what is the reason for that? They must be part of the same thing, right? Or there's only one thing, and it looks almost the same from every angle, or what? 
So this mathematics, what is brought back from a mathematical journey is that which fits in this radio receiver, more or less. When we come back from a psychedelic journey, we actually cannot remember in this reality all of the detail of the space-time patterns experienced during that journey. When we shut down the microscope, and go back to the laboratory, try to, it doesn't matter, you draw, you photograph your film or whatever. It's just a very low dimensional representation of a little fragment of the thing which you can bring back. So, what is experienced, remembered, and brought into collective consciousness and ordinary reality by these journeys is very determined by the structure of this radio receiver. That's one thing. There is an enormous filtration that the ultimate reality is perhaps one wave, and our experience of it is some kind of filtration. And so what is filtered through this filter seems very similar no matter what we're looking at. In this sense, at least, we are looking at the structure of the filter, that that mathematical reality, that psychedelic reality, that ultimate reality, which we view through the filter, is only functioning as a projection lamp. Or it could be that in the ultimate reality itself there is a terrific resonance and it is all one. It certainly seems like that to any person who has made several of these journeys, different types of journeys, I would say, on personal experience, seems very much the same place. It's even the same place. And there could be the resonance between, this is what Rupert Sheldrake is talking about under the name morphic resonance, that this one wave of reality, the thing, the cosmos itself, and the filter, our consciousness, our capability to perceive it, even they are pretty much identical. So it's not that we're seeing some really foreign object projected through this filter. It actually is a perfect fit. It feels like that. I don't know that it would make sense, you know, because why would this radio receiver evolve in hundred million years into a shape totally different from some objective reality if there was one. So I think it's all very harmonious and, to make a long story short, what you are seeing in any of these journeys is actually it. <laughs> so Ralph, is the way to see different parts of it or to reconfigure the receiver is to evolve languages of description? languages and tools and models. I mean, cognitive language is but one of cognitive strategies. Well, by language, I mean, I would consider a model a three-dimensional language. Now, that's really cheating, Terence. <laughs> to, <laughs> to appropriate the whole of the, as, as an expert linguist, you would like to, well, that's perfectly okay. <laughs> I don't care what you call it. <laughs> Uh, my feeling is, though, that good models go beyond language as spoken, written, or experienced under the concept of language. Just as we feel that our actual experience, let us say, in making love in a great ski run or in deep powder or something like that, we, we have the feeling that no matter how, this would be reduced to language, even in the sense of computer model or whatever that the essence would basically be lost. So, do you believe that the nervous system 
is organized the way it is to process information. Absolutely. Information is organized yes. That way. Well, I even suggested that the wheel came in after loops were built. You see, you have this nervous system has a very interesting structure. Now, we don't know that the neural network, for example, is actually essential for receiving the information. I mean, doesn't it seem a bit odd that these ants are actually able to carry out their life with that ant brain? They've got... <laughs> so it could be that a single cell, in fact, I would say it's certain, a single cell has a living cell, a biological cell, has the complexity of the entire universe. There is no reduction. You know, it doesn't matter. We have a lot of cells here. Basically, the complexity of one cell is the same kind of thing as the entire universe. However, just to look at something, let us think of the neural net. Then the, in the neural net, you have a whole bunch of things that are vaguely similar if you don't look too closely, which is, again, the kind of thing we have to do in modeling or any cognitive strategy to try to understand the thing. So we got a bunch of, let us suppose, even though wrong, identical neurons are then connected in a network. Well, you look at the thing with a microscope, and they got all these stains and stuff and very good pictures, and use computer graphics to reconstruct the pictures into a three-dimensional model, which you can rotate in front of your eyes and understand, and was projected on PBS last year, right? And then you see that there are um, clumps, and then there are clumps of clumps, and there's clumps of clumps of clumps. There's a lot of communication between nearest neighbors, and then there's pipes or telephone wires that goes from one clump of clumps to another one over a long distance. So it has this kind of hierarchical structure. And, and that's the same kind of structure that we see in everything else, in social organizations. I mean, there's systems, right? there's networks here, there's, what is it called, cybernetics, general systems theory, that people look at this and they talk, and their whole technical language just consists of stuff like clumps of clumps and wires between and diagrams of, and that's about as far as they got an understanding of the thing. But on that level, everything in the phenomenal universe has the same structure. So these mathematical models are very good tools for modeling these complex systems because they are microscopic working models of a complex. That is all. I mean, what else? Now, the fact that their behavior could be mapped in this way, that you can grok it very simply, that's the miracle of the computer revolution, plus the increase of our understanding, plus, without a doubt, a whole bunch of revelation, where people are receiving instructions from another planet or something that says, connect it up in the following way, don't ask. Yes, I mean, this, we've been talking about visible, uh, visible languages. What the computer does is it takes these descriptive equations of various curves and things and turns it into something beheld, which is much yeah. closer to the essence of what it is. Maybe we could think of the different cognitive strategies as ways of building a bridge from the complexity of experiential reality itself all the way down to, and is quite a ways to, language. Is the film that you're going to show today views through the microscope, or is it a computer graphics reconstruction of a, a uh, attractive? This is the use of computer graphics to explain, to portray, to visualize the structure of a chaotic attractor by showing not just 
what it looks like itself, the chaotic attractor, but also the invisible matrix around it, the womb, which gave it its form. So this is devoted to one attractor, which was the first one discovered in actuality, I mean, in the phenomenal universe and through computer simulation in 1961 um, that came up when somebody's trying to model the weather, to predict the weather. And he made the model and ran it on the computer, which was then newly available for this purpose. And he obtained <laughs> this, it would be something like the accidental discovery of LSD, right? It was this revolution happened to this guy who, just by coincidence, happened to be perfectly trained for this task. That he had been a graduate student of the first mathematician to discover this kind of thing in mathematical models through the use of mentation alone. Uh, George D. Burkhoff, chairman of mathematics at Harvard University in the early part of the century the first famous American mathematician, and a follower of Poincaré, who sort of invented everything that makes this technology possible. Anyway, that first one, which now there's a list, and they have names, so you could say it's been bridged down into ordinary language. The Lorenzo Attractor, that's the first one, 1961. The Rusler Attractor, that's the next one, 1964. The Shaw Bagel, and so on, then there's a growing list of these objects. It's not like the wheel exactly. There is a family of them which are sort of, instead of being wheel-like, they are chaotic attractor-like things. No, no, no there is an infinite list. There's an infinite list of catastrophes also. And at, at this point already, infinite list is known, some of which are almost indistinguishable from each other. So you might look for a new way to group them, and then they would only be three or something. Anyway, of this list, the one, the first one, the Lorenz attractor, its physical appearance is as an almost two-dimensional object in three-dimensional space. It is this sheet that goes around like uh, two holes, and it goes around, and then it comes back in. Both of these come back in and are glued onto the original sheet again. But each sheet is a little thick, like cardboard. And when you look with the microscope, you see the infinite number of layers there, any one of which is actually a little thick, like thinner cardboard. And if you look with a better microscope, you and so on. So it has that fractal structure in there. And the movie, which is not explained enough so that you can understand, but you will see. So I tell you now what you will be looking at is the, first of all, the experimental situation in which it came up, which is the simulation of a two-dimensional gas. You'll see the molecules moving. The red ones are hotter, but unfortunately this is not the color version of the film. So they just appear a little brighter. They're the hotter ones and the cooler ones. When the hotter one touches the cooler one, the cooler one gets hotter. Like, all this is simulated. And, and then that's on one side. On the other side, the mathematical model for it. So this is to give the idea of what modeling is about. There's a target situation. Molecules of gas are moving around in the atmosphere, trying to model the weather, right? So when the sun goes down and the Earth is still warm, it cooks this layer of atmosphere from below, and it boils. It actually boils. It simmers. So you get this rises up, comes down in these, like those simmering in the bottom of the pan, there are these little rings where the water is coming up here and going down there, toroidal rings. And so you see that is happening in the fluid. The mathematical model doesn't look anything like that. That is over here. The relationship, the, the model is three-dimensional, and the actual situation is sort of infinite-dimensional. And the relationship between, they try to explain. And then 
that's just history, and then the study of the mathematical object, its fractal structure, and then the revelation of the invisible matrix by a technique that took enormous number of hours on a supercomputer at Brookhaven National Lab. I need somebody who knows how to thread the projector. Yeah, why don't we take a break and uh, everybody can get water and reposition and we'll get the projector threaded in. Well, thank you very much, Ralph. That was uh, amazing. What I explain, if you can, what R is. Oh, R. R is just how much you're cooking it. You mean how much energy is being put into the system? Um, what is driving this system is the temperature difference, basically, between the top and the bottom. Yeah. And can so. R have any value from uh, negative infinity to positive infinity? Yes. And it will, and, and these will continue to generate an infinite number of system responses to the shift in R? Well, understanding R is very important because it has to do with the basic idea of this modeling scheme. And there is sort of input and output. And input is R. You set R. Bruce was setting R when he made the film, and so he'd know where he set it. He put it in the upper left-hand corner, R equals so-and-so, and then it keeps changing. So you have to think of R as being a knob. There's the R knob. Uh -huh. And as far as what it corresponds to, as long as we're interested primarily in the abstract something, it doesn't matter what it corresponds to. In this particular modeling context, it meant the temperature difference between the hot Earth and the freezing ionosphere. So when you turn the heat up under the pot, it simmers faster. So that's a knob on the stove. You turn the knob, behavior changes. When you're not turning the knob, the behavior is fixed. But what it's fixed at is a movie. You saw it in the lower left corner. It was rolling counterclockwise, or it was rolling the other way. So it would roll this way, and then it would roll this way. When it shifted back and forth between rolls was some unpredictable kind of change of behavior as way. But that entire movie, with all of that, is one movie when you don't change the knob. When you do change the knob, the entire movie changes. It might be periodic, meaning three rolls left, one roll right, three rolls left, one roll right, three rolls, that's periodic. Uh -huh. Then this other thing, 42 to the left, one to the right, 12 to the left, and it, that's a random number generator, uh -huh. basically, although it's a totally deterministic system in the sense of Newton. So R, that's the knob, and the movie with this mast-shaped thing with a little satellite rolling around it, that movie is the output. Now, you might have a more complicated system where you've got a stove, then you've got the atmosphere over it, then you've got a plane in there, then you've got the people looking on from the other planet, you've got all these different things, where this one's output turns this next one's knob. You see, and that's how this technology would be applied to the problem of modeling a complex situation. You'd have a bunch of modules. Each one would be this complicated. And then you would interconnect them in a certain way that this one is the controller for that one. Of course, this one might be the controller for the first one. And then you get a so-called hypercycle out of which is made models for 
the evolution of life in the first epochs of time called prebiotic biology. Yeah. So um, in this case, ours, the important thing is that's the knob. Now, what would happen if you had two knobs, R1 and R2? And what is R2? Well, if R1 is the temperature, R2 might be the ambient electromagnetic field, might be the degree of ionization of the gas, might be the weight of the so gas, words, might be the size of the, the pressure, or it might be anything else, but controllable, so you would have a knob for each. And didn't you, as an experimentalist, actually build machines. This wasn't all on the blackboard, was it not? You built well, I built a machine to study the bifurcations with two knobs. And uh, these two knobs were, this is in the category of, it's called nonlinear oscillations, one of the main branches of experimental dynamics since its beginning with Galileo. It's called nonlinear oscillations, so it means an oscillator, like here's Foucault's pendulum, so the giant pendulum hangs from the ceiling, you start it moving, goes for years, reveals the rotation of the Earth on its axis or something. So now you take... You all understand what that refers to? The, the Foucault pendulum experiment is if you have a pendulum swinging and you set up little chalk pieces or something for it to knock over in a circle in 24 hours, it will have knocked them all over because the pendulum stays still, but the Earth is turning beneath it. Because of this sort of gyroscope trip. So now they've got a big one I've seen in the Museum of Science in I forget what city, maybe Paris, and then you... It's Chicago, that's right, yeah. So, yeah. so science museums have to have a Foucault pendulum. <laughs> Even New York. So now you take the Foucault pendulum and you hold it by the fulcrum, that's that, that ring set in the ceiling that it hangs from, and instead of uh, hanging from the ceiling, you hang it from your hand, and now you begin to wave it back and forth, like this. So there's two variables here. One is the so-called amplitude, that's how far you move it before turning back, and the other is frequency, which means how many total round trips within the span of one minute. And then if you do this mechanically, then you have an actual gadget with two knobs, the frequency knob and the amplitude knob. So this is a classical experiment with Foucault's pendulum, actually, that began around the turn of this century. And it's still going on today that people do work with a real pendulum because they don't trust computers or something. I went to Kyoto to visit the greatest experimental dynamicist since Galileo whose name is Hayashi. And uh, so he's retirement age plus, you know, he's in his middle 70s or something. And he's not a doddering old man, but he's pretty well slowed down. And I said, well, what are you doing now? So he knows what I'm doing. I send him my paper. So what are you doing now? He says, I'm building a pendulum. <laughs> <laughs> a real pendulum. <laughs> So he had done the most amazing experiments with analog computers. In fact, invented, made, created the first analog computer for dynamics research during World War II, which, of course, nobody ever found out about until much later because it was secret, just like the ones in England and the ones in Germany. And uh, this changing the frequency and the amplitude with which you oscillate and oscillate it which is called a forced oscillation, causes it to do the most amazing things. Like, it's oscillating like this. You're pushing it, of course. 
maybe it would like slow down so a lot of friction or something would slow down so you keep uh, see you move the fulcrum back and forth and then the thing keeps oscillating instead of bending down and now as you push it back and forth you gradually slow down the speed at what you're doing and suddenly it gets a big with no apparent cause a huge increase in the amplitude of the resultant swing which Dufing discovered in 1908 was the beginning of hysteresis this famous concept of mechanical engineering which also goes under the name of memory as in the memory of the fender of your car when you bend it and then you can never unbend it completely that kind of memory but which has actually been applied to this very thing hysteresis or memory mechanical memory discovered by Dufy in 1908 applied to this memory mathematical model for transfer from short-term to long-term memory, memory by Christopher Heeman in the 1960s so it's a classic forced oscillation when you change the frequency the amplitude what do you see so what I built was a machine in which a fluid is vibrated and you have these two knobs and then you look you know like what happens using the human pattern recognition capability as the observing tool because what's going on in this layer of fluid as it's vibrating is a movie that's so complicated there would be no other way to actually register what it is other than trying to grok it Henry did you think did it change or is it still doing the same thing kind of research very hard to publish that I call the macroscope yes that's a good idea so you should yes all yell out things I, I went over that rather quickly now <laughs> the uh, yeah so this is an actual published paper by somebody which is readable and he's one of the in my opinion the great geniuses in the history of applied mathematics and his name Christopher Zeman so he became a household word in the middle 70s when um, his mathematical colleagues more or less publicly crucified him for using the latest stuff from the mathematical research frontier in a lot of popular applications and publishing the results in technical journals such as Newsweek, Nature, <laughs> <laughs> and stuff like this. So he had a, a model in which the relationship to something happening in the brain was a very distant analogy what he tried to motivate like this we have neurons that oscillate like most of the typical thing what you call a neuron that people call a neuron does this thing called the nerve action potential that when you give it an input on one end it responds with a solitary wave that travels down the axon and when it gets near the other end it does something to somebody else just once and then stops but there's another kind that does that all the time and they're called bursters so that's something that's oscillating and when you do a recording with an EEG single cell electrode you find that there's this train of spikes that is more or less endless and if you listen to it in the earphone it's a bunch of clicks like a porpoise it's called a burster and the bursters can be turned on and off which means then stops silence so something's turning the burster on and off so that's one kind of oscillator known to exist in the neural net there's zillions of them especially if you include glial cells in the brain picture instead of just neurons then there's another thing there are circuits so-called circuits we have neural neurons are connected in a net 
Each neuron, in fact, is a distributed processing system with literally millions of computers processing away in its dendritic net. So a single biological cell is already an incredibly complicated net from the point of view of computer science kind of net. You take a bunch of those, they might actually have a loop in there where this one tickles this one tickles, and, and a loop. And that even though each one of those is a single shot type of neuron, the fact that they are in a loop can set up a solitary wave that more or less travels around endlessly, and then you get an oscillator. So his analogy was we have, we don't know exactly where they are or something, there's a bunch of oscillators, like you get alpha rhythm, beta rhythm, theta rhythms, so the oscillators. And then there's another circuit, there's this circuit, and then there's another one, and maybe this one is sort of driving this one. And then as this driving one slowed down, its rate of oscillating would cause this other one to do a certain something. So that was the kind of level of application that he suggested. And then he applied hardcore knowledge about this doofing bifurcation in the context of electronic oscillators. That was the idea. And catastrophe theory came in there, so that's why he was crucified. He was associated with this debacle of catastrophe theory that happened in the 70s. He's been forgiven now. He was appointed director of the, whatever it's called, essentially National Science Foundation in England last year. Well, the applications are good ones. There's still no one doing research in catastrophe theory. There are a few papers, you know, but basically everybody is afraid to touch it. The father of catastrophe is Rene Tom. Yeah. No, no. How would you define catastrophe? How are we using the term? Well, this is a technical term from this mathematical theory. And it was inspired, I think, Tome, the father of catastrophe theory, is spelled with an E, see, because he was a great classicist, I mean, among scientists. He studied, he knew Greek. So it just refers to the situation where you have the box with the knob, or knobs, and you change them, but gradually, smoothly, and ever so slightly. And then suddenly, there is a disastrous, sudden, radical change in the behavior of the system. There's like nothing defects, catastrophic defects, about it in the sense yeah. of, you know, something bad is happening. But like that is the one where you push slightly and suddenly it lets go. And I'm afraid that's where this tape cuts off. It's also maybe a way for me to better explain why I'm intimidated about interviewing Ralph. You see, in the discussion immediately preceding the cutoff, there were dozens of openings for questions about the complex topics he just mentioned. And I'm sure you were thinking of some yourself. Yet, uh, <laughs> had I been interviewing him, my question would have been about the Foucault pendulum at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. You see, I was 12 years old when I first saw it, and it was all my Aunt Anne could do to pry me away from that exhibit. I can still clearly see in my mind exactly where I was standing and watching it swing back and forth, trying to feel the earth rotate under me. It was a powerful childhood experience that, well, it actually launched my interest in science. So, uh, do you see how easy it would have been for me to divert the conversation from science to nostalgia and change the tone of this conversation? That's why I no longer do interviews without a co-pilot to keep me on course. Now, for me, there was a lot of new information in this talk. Uh, in fact, I've already listened to it twice, and after I reread my underlines in Ralph's book Schism, I'm going to listen to it once again. 
And my guess is that you will most likely do the same thing. If modeling the future has some interest for you, then be sure to read Schism. It takes a cybernetic approach to explore the impact of social media, political polarization, and collective behavior. And by taking a cybernetic approach to explore these topics, you can get a better look into the interconnection of these phenomena. And I think you're going to find it fascinating. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>